You're listening to the No Labels, No Limits podcast with best-selling author Sarah Box, where you get the inside scoop on the steps action takers and decision makers take to align their purpose to their principles and achieve their goals in business and life. We focus on the mantra, no labels, no limits, no excuses. Each week, you'll hear from remarkable guests who have overcome challenges and obstacles to succeed in the face of adversity. By listening to their stories, you'll get practical tips, tools, and resources you can implement today to bust through your own internalized prisons of worry and doubt. And now, without further ado, please welcome your commanding coach with plenty of chutzpah and heart, Sarah Box. Hi there, this is Sarah, your host of the No Labels, No Limits podcast. And this week we are coming back to 2019 where we're revisiting the one-year birthday with the wisdom and insights from a former national domestic policy advisor and lifelong child advocate, a graphic mural and neon artist extraordinaire, an Amazon Wall Street Journal and USA Today best-selling author and practitioner of ancient wisdom traditions, and an expert business and personal elevate coach. So we're going to hear from Carol Rathko, former domestic policy advisor to President Clinton, educator and counselor and a really funny kind woman where she shares how she and her parents created an innovative supportive system for her son in partnership with doctors and other specialists at a time when there wasn't such a thing in place and what was there was not widespread. David Speed is a multidisciplinary artist whose current focus is on neon painting. Now, David started out, he would say being a respectable vandal. He's fascinated by light and shadow and creates work that plays with that drama. And in this excerpt, David is going to talk about the myth of being born with talent and how he challenged that for a successful art career. Then we're going to hear from Ann Kate Sullivan, who offers a unique blend of spiritual, psychological, creative storytelling, color awareness, nutrition, and intuition as part of a soul-centered practice for the emerging times. And in this particular excerpt from 2019 interview, Anne describes the difference between the hero and the heroine's journeys. And to round out the March 2019 celebration compilation, we have Catherine Binkley. Now, in this outtake from that episode, Catherine talks about intentionally creating the foundation for a life that lights you up every day because that's what she's created for herself and helps her clients do. So I hope you enjoy the nuggets of wisdom and life lessons shared by our guests, all for March of 2019. And if you do, please be sure to share the episode with someone else that you know who would benefit from it. And if you want to hear the full interviews for any of these guests, click on the links in the show notes. Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Well, I think what's interesting, and you mentioned that your son was actually a teacher, continues to be a teacher for you. Why don't you share a little bit about your son? Because I think that will frame also people's ability to understand how deeply you know what the issues and concerns of families are, especially when it comes around to challenges that you and your son and family have faced. Uh, Ham Prasco was born 45 years ago. 
and he came when they had predicted he would, but Hamp was born under five pounds, and basically, uh, we were told as his parents, we don't know if he'll make it through the first day or two. If we can have him in in the situation where he makes it the first six weeks, the chances are very good he will survive. But we have no idea what kind of uh, brain damage or other damage may have been done. And my uh, parents were there at the time. My father's a pharmacist in a small town. He's used to being with families when they get that kind of news and working with them. So with that, my parents and I looked at each other and said, okay, we're going to do whatever it takes here. Unfortunately, my son's father had a very, very difficult time. And I understood that because I knew him and his family. We grew up in the same town. And even though they're back, the His father was from a medical family. He had a very difficult time with it. So it was kind of Carol and her parents that primarily pushed ahead at that point. Uh, Hamp made it. He stayed in the hospital intensive care nursery for three weeks, pulled out his own tubes and started feeding, which they weren't even sure he was going to be able to do. And I guess the best thing to say is that That was before we had infant intervention programs. Fortunately, they came along within two years. But I knew enough from my graduate work in in counseling and childhood development to know that we couldn't wait until there was a program. We had to start figuring out things to do. And so as I chose the doctors we went to, I would say to them, I'm not coming to you as an orthopedic surgeon because we know he's going to need help. He's been labeled cerebral palsy. I'm coming to you because I want you to be a partner in a program that we're going to put together for him until we get some pediatric uh, therapist around. We didn't even have a pediatric orthopedic person then, but I learned in calling around, not many states did. So we started. And I'll never forget the day the orthopedic surgeon looked at me and said, okay, my part of the partnership, piece of advice one, every time you change this child's diaper, you move every joint that is supposed to be movable and you move it every direction that it will move without harming him. I thought, okay. And I looked at him and I said, can you tell me the relationship between moving the joints and urination? He said, he just died laughing. He said, no, I've been thinking hard. What kind of gauge I could tell you? Because it is very important. We keep his range of motion. He said, and it hit me. The thing you're going to do most frequently is change his diaper. So that's when you ought to do this range of motion business. Therapist I later had said, they were thrilled to have that piece of advice. It was one of the best pieces of advice they'd ever heard. So that was kind of the first eye-opener for me that this was going to be much like the creativity course I took in college as an elective, where they were really trying to get us to think 
outside the box. That was kind of a new term back then. And that's what that orthopedic surgeon did for me. And I'll tell you, uh, therapists, once we got pediatric therapists, pediatric orthopedic surgeons, they were all amazed that a ham's range of motion was so good. So it's just one of those examples where you start working together and he really thought about it and he realized that was the most important thing we needed to do from his field's perspective and we did it. So we can talk more about everything that was involved in having him go to school and he was in that first class of children covered by the federal law 94142 and our state law which I worked very hard on both of them while he was young but he is now 45 he moved into a group home the semester before he completed high school because you don't get openings very often in those and we grabbed that one he has worked in state government in three different departments and a few years ago looked at me and said I'm ready for a break uh, from working in the state agencies and doing the mail. I like it a lot, but I'm ready for a break. And so we worked with Easter Seals where he lives and where he has gotten therapy since earliest infant intervention program we had when he was about two. And um, they have a training center It's not like the old workshops of old, but they actually take classes. And we decided to put him back in that because he was very excited about it. And so, you know, he sends me an email in computer class every morning and uh, we exchange things back and forth that way. But uh, he's doing very well. He uh, lives there in Little Rock in the group home where his father and stepmother live. Uh, My sister lives there and her children. And then my daughter, Hamp's sister, uh, Mary Margaret, uh, when she finished college and uh, some work experience outside of Arkansas, moved back there and married and has three sons. And they adore Hamp and he adores them. So Hamp has family there. Hamp is a very social creature. And he has friends. When I go to Little Rock, I'm amazed. If if you go to an event like a basketball game or a football game with my son, be ready not to watch the event because it is a event-long receiving line. People see him from around the arena or the stadium. And so they come over and stand in line to say hi to him. And, and they always feel like they need to let me know how they know him and that they're not just coming to take advantage of him or something. And uh, it's amazing. Hamp knows a lot of people. Uh, he has a lot of people pulling for him. And he's one great human being. And run that risk. And at the time, the rewards outweighed the risks. I knew that I was painting in areas where I wasn't supposed to be, but I was a very considerate vandal. I didn't, I I never painted on people's property. I never painted on places of worship. Um, The places where I painted were, would be sort of abandoned warehouses, um, the, the, by the side of the railway lines on old, uh, on old walls. 
And I guess it, I, it, was, it was how I found myself when I was younger. And through the artwork, as I started to progress, because I was rubbish when I started, I was, I was terrible. I wasn't very good. And just through relentless practice and determination to master this tool um, of the spray can, uh, I just put in hours and hours and hours. And as I got better, that was when I sort of started to realize that I could, I could do more because people were more receptive to seeing what I could do because they were looking at the, at the strength of the artwork rather than the location in which it was placed. That makes sense. It makes sense. So you actually had to put in a lot of time to build your craft, if you will. Because the work that I show, that you put on your website of the, the art, the murals, the different pieces, it's astounding. And when I've looked, and I've seen murals around in different cities, and I just think, wow, because, you know, you talk about your sketches, but then putting them up. And for me, when something's on a little piece of paper, that's one concept. But then you make it up there and big, right? That's just a whole other scale. So how did you move from the small things to working? First of all, how did you move from working at that level to where it became a business and people were basically paying you to break the law or giving you their walls and saying, hey, this is, yeah. come here, right? Yeah, I think there's this myth that, that people are born with talent. And I don't, I don't believe that there's any such thing as natural talent. Um, I think that anyone who is, is good at something, it's because they practiced. And sometimes if we enjoy something, it doesn't feel like we're practicing, but we are practicing. And I, I think there's this, people say you're gifted. I mean, I, I, it's very lovely when, so painting in the streets, you, you get into a lot of conversations with people. And because you can't avoid it, you're in public. And uh, so anyone can come up and talk to you and they do. And so when I'm painting walls outside, people will come up and start conversations with me. And one of the things they say quite often is you're so talented. And that's very sweet. And I accept that humbly. Um, It's really nice that people say that. But I think it took me, it's like, that was hard work. What you're seeing on the wall is is 19 years of experience of, of trial and error of failure, of, of um, experiments, of pushing past my comfort zones um, and, and just progressing. Um, and I'm nowhere near the complete artist that I want to be, um, which always sort of, people always think that's funny when they, they look at my work. But I think as artists and creatives, we're never finished. We're never finished. Everything is, is, um, is something that, that, we're, that we're working on. Um, and I, I mean, that's why I love the, the name of your podcast, No, no Labels, No Limits. It's we, everyone wants to label everything and it's a human thing and I get it. It's, it's so that we can understand things quicker and, and we can just sort of identify it as fast as possible. But I think people say, oh, I'm not artistic. So that therefore means that they're not creative. There's so many business owners that I, are, that I know that are hugely creative. They don't happen to paint or, or write poetry or whatever that we kind of deem, oh, these are creative things. I mean, Creativity is, is problem solving. And that's, that's where my creativity has come from. I've, I've seen a problem of how do I create this image? How do I make it as, as kind of dynamic as I possibly can? That's, that's creativity. It's a, it's a habit. It's practice. Um, and it's just something that I've worked on and cultivated over, over a long period. Because that's the other thing is people get disheartened when they don't see progression quick enough. And everything... It's, it's just having that blind faith of knowing if I continue, I will get better. Um, and, I, and I think and most people just don't have what it takes to just keep going on that track. 
Um, and that's part of, of my mission is to just tell people to just keep going. People who keep going are the ones that win. It's, it's simple as that. When I think about mythology and heroines and heroes, I will say that there are many fewer heroines told stories about, but it's also very familiar ever since, especially since Joseph Campbell's work, right? We all have this sense of the hero's journey. So it made me wonder, knowing that I got to ask you this question, how do you see the distinction between a hero's journey and a heroine's journey if there is one? I think it's a really good question for our time. And I think it's one that we need to answer and that it evolves. But I, when I was studying and I was collecting folklore, uh, I wound up, I tell the story in the book, that, that I wound up at Trinity College looking at the, this, whole, this whole row of white male busts. <laughs> and I thought, I'm not sure I really fit here. And, and so when I went, I actually went looking in the west of Ireland and I had this actually sort of terrible sense of emptiness. I was like, well, I'm here doing this, but will I ever matter? Will my stories, the way I tell it, will I matter? Am I you know, am I out of place in some way? And so it became this kind of difficult question that I had to grapple with. And one day I went to um, Glastonbury, which is a, I don't know if you've been there, but it's the pilgrimage place. It's been a pilgrimage place in the Southwest of England for many, many years. It's sort of the the British um, Jerusalem. So I was there by the, a lovely well called the Chalice Well. And I was meditating and I was really asking to find the feminine face of the divine. And I had this presence, this, this wonderful mystical presence. And I saw what I felt. What I felt was this wonderful mother. And I realized that, that the divine has many, many faces. And the faces can be masculine. They can be feminine. They can be trees. They can be fairy folk. They can be all kinds of things, you know. So this well, this journey with this well started opening up these otherworldly experiences. So I became very fascinated by this. So I, I did start journeying to very sacred places and meditating in those places and getting in touch with the archetypal energies that reside there. And, and this is a, a you know, there's a, there are stories that live in the land. And when you stand on those places, you can feel it. A lot of people go to, um, they, they follow the, the, hero, the hero's journey, King Arthur. <laughs> so and it's a very fantastic tale. And, and for my son, my son wants to know everything about King Arthur. And, and I think it's important. But, you know, also the stories of Nimue. And you don't know these names. Nimue. Nimue was the lover of Merlin. And she was actually, some people say, more powerful than Merlin, right? Then they have these other Welsh tales. Some of the uh, women in the book, um, were demonized. And so my job was to go back and um, say, uh, this one Welsh goddess, for instance, her name was Blodaiwith. She's, she's, she rises up out of a flower. She's created out of, out of a flower. And then she's called an adulteress and a murderer. So I had to get back and look at her tale to see why a flower goddess would, would be condemned. And as you read the tale, you can understand it. First of all, she doesn't operate, she, she doesn't have human morals. She's a flower. <laughs> she has a completely different perspective. <laughs> so one of the things that happens as you, as you begin a heroine's journey, heroine's different. Like a hero has to find his strength. 
right? He's, he's going to ride into the underworld and he's going to probably grab the, the, the hallows that he needs and he's going to come back with him. On a heroine's journey, we're not slaying dragons. What we're doing is we're going to the, to the place where the dragon resides and we're going to listen to the dragon. We're going to befriend the dragon, so, which could mean all kinds of things. But a, hero, a heroine's journey is becoming sensitive about listening to the land, going to the, and this is a real story. There are these places, these sacred wells that you can go to. And at once, once upon a time, they say that there were maidens that lived by these wells. And heroes would go to these wells and they would ask, they would ask for a sip of inspiration. They would ask for the wisdom of the well. And the maidens, maybe, maybe if they thought he was a good guy and they thought he was really on track and maybe he deserved to be a hero, they might rise up out of the well and they might let him have a sip and they might let him begin to see what his gifts were. But in the tales, as, as we've forgotten to go and honor these places, they've become sleepy. These places are sleepy. So part of the, the heroine's journey is to go back into nature and to spend time with the trees so that the trees wake up. The trees wake up and they go, yes, I do have a doorway. I do have a doorway. I'm, a, I'm an oak or I'm a holly bush. And yes, I do have a, a doorway to the place where the fairy folk are. Well, first, I just want to say thanks for having me. I'm really honored to be here. And I would just add that I had a lot of experience in marketing that I brought to the table, but mindset by far is has been the game changer for me. And I've seen it with my clients as well. They often come to me and think that there's more that they need to know, but really it's, it's not what they know. It's how they're getting in their own way. And I'm sure we'll chat about that some along the way today. But if you can tackle that mindset piece, you're definitely ahead of the game. So I would imagine, and yes, we are going to tackle that. We're going to dive into it because I agree. I think that's one of the biggest game changers is how we think about things. And I'm very interested in some of the ways you help women address that. But I'm interested also in someone who has a very successful 10-year professional career making a turn, right? So what was that aha moment or series of moments for you that you just finally said or said, it's my time. I want to make this change and, and take this leap and start my own venture. Well, I wish I could say that it was super glamorous and I just decided one day <laughs> that this is what I was going to do. But really it was a series of events that more so I feel like was the universe just like kicking me into action. Um, I'd been thinking about it for a while. Um, I had seen my mom start her own business earlier. I had known that I had the skill set to go out on my own. I was serving clients and managing everything from beginning to end for my clients and just doing it under someone else's name. And so I knew that I could do it and I thought about it. But finally, one day my boss called me into her office and she decided to share her plans for restructuring her company with me. And I was really um, excited to hear the news. I love change. I love talking about growth. And so I was excited to see how she was transitioning her business. I helped market our own agency at that point, as well as handling marketing for our clients. And so I was curious how she was going to move forward. But as she unfolded her plan, she started to share with me her thoughts about my career path. 
And she was really excited and positioned this move as something that was going to be a big promotion and opportunity for me. Unfortunately, I did not feel that way at all. When I heard the direction she was moving in with her company, it was it was just so out of alignment with where I felt I wanted to go. And it felt out of alignment with my values as well. It seemed as though she was restructuring in a way that was going to prioritize productivity and profit for the company, which is great for her, but it was at the expense of the people who are working for her and the quality of work for clients. And so I really hesitated and struggled through probably a few weeks of thinking, okay, what is this going to look like? Because she was going to completely, as I said, restructure in the sense of we had different departments. I was managing all of the employees, the clients and projects related to anything marketing in the company. And all of a sudden, everything was going to shift and be separated. And I knew that this isn't where I needed to be anymore. And so with that in mind, I I honestly really struggled. And I started to create this plan B of, okay, so... I've been thinking about doing this business thing on my own for a while. Maybe now's the time. And I started to dream and plan, but I was in a strict non-compete. And so I couldn't just go to another agency or start a local agency here. I needed to do something very different. And I, I decided to kind of take some baby steps into it. And so... With that said, I also had to have... I, I needed to notify her, right? I didn't want to do anything that was outside of... I, I believe in doing the right thing. I'll just put it that way. So I shared with her that I was I had already been clear about my thoughts and beliefs around the, the direction she was going and how I didn't feel like that was the right path, that I'm happy to serve in the interim. But then I shared with her that I was going to start doing something else on the side. Well, that didn't go over so well. <laughs> and so I found myself within a matter of weeks laid off. And I mean, it's not that surprising, but at the time I really didn't expect it. I was honest and open and thought that I would have a little more time. Well, I didn't. So that kicked me right into gear. And I guess that's how it all got started. That's interesting. Um, a couple of things I want to ask you to talk a little bit more about and how they shaped how you went forward. So when you were talking about it not being a lot in alignment with your... Um, values and your beliefs. Did that, when you recognize that, had you known that? Like, did you, were you always really clear on that? Or was it the changes where that made you really reflect on what are my values and beliefs? And then can I even stay here? You know, I really already had a good foundation for what my values and beliefs were and both personally and professionally. And I had started to sense that the company prioritized profit over people in general. And as I started to feel that, I was told by others in the company that they were making changes, they were transitioning, that things were going to to shift. But as soon as I heard this news from her, it was clear that that wasn't actually going to be the case. So yeah, I already had a feeling that things were potentially out of alignment long-term, but then this solidified it for me. Okay. Then did you, did that shape how you formed your own business then in terms of 
how you thought about it or structured it? Do you have staff? Do you work remotely with people? Because what you've learned in that relationship thing, I guess what I'm after is how did that influence um, yeah. how you structured your work or and or how you work with your female clients who may have some of those same issues coming up either in the business they're running or one they're trying to create. So I had a really fortunate experience right out of college. The first agency that I worked with taught me everything that I so firmly believe now about how you should treat your people. And so I had a great experience to compare that to and contrast that with. And so I think both experiencing what that should look like and feel like, as well as then what it didn't have both influenced me. And now I do have, I do have an employee. I have several contractors that I work with and I intentionally invest in my own leadership skills, working with a mentor to improve that, talk about company values and prioritize the people. I am building a life that lights me up and I want anyone who works with me to be able to experience a life that lights them up as well. And I just hope to be a part of that. You've been listening to the No Labels, No Limits podcast with best-selling author, change agent, and strategic vision coach, Sarah Box. You can grab the show notes and find out how to work with Sarah at sarahbox.com forward slash no labels, no limits podcast. We'd love this podcast to reach as many people as possible. So please remember to rate, leave a five-star review and share the podcast with someone you think would get value from this conversation. Until next time, keep taking those daily action steps to align your purpose to your principles and achieve your goals in business and life.